0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is speculative fiction author and social critic Sarah Gailey. She's giving a series of talks and readings in Utah, and uh, so she's in studio with us uh, today. Uh, one of her goals here on her trip is uh, emboldening female writers and activists. In her first year of eligibility, Gailey was nominated for a Hugo Award for her critique and celebration of the women of Harry Potter, in a category alongside legendary fiction writer Neil Gaiman and the late Carrie Fisher. And her River, Lo- River of Teeth novellas, a duology that follows a group of hippopotamus wranglers on a blood soaked journey down the Mississippi River, was published. Published this year and was an Amazon bestseller. We'll talk about that. Uh, She's a resident of Oakland. She didn't begin writing until 2015, and she currently has three additional uh, novels under contract and a serial novelette, Fisher of uh, Bones. Her visit is being jointly sponsored by Utah State University's English and Journalism departments with support from Deanne Morris, benefactor of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series which brings alternative and provocative speakers to uh, Utah State. So here are the appearances this evening, 7 o'clock, in Salt Lake City at the King's English Bookshop. Then uh, tomorrow afternoon at 1.30 p.m., she'll give a reading and answer questions about her work in the USU Library Room 101. Then Friday at 11 a.m., she's giving the Morris Media and Society lecture on the topic, Fear of the Female Voice. So, Sarah Gailey, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Tom. Uh,
0: congratulations on the awards, and I've uh, been getting a lot of buzz for a lot of your works. So, <laughs> congratulations. Um, so, one of the goals, I guess, of the trip, uh, according to the press release I just uh, read here, emboldening female writers and activists.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Uh,
0: what, what's your what's your concern there, and, and how are you trying to do this?
1: Um, you know, when I was asked to come out and lecture for the Morris Media and Society, lecture series my first thought was what is my goal when i'm here um you know before i think about what do i want to talk about when i'm talking at these students uh who have been asked to come in and listen to what i have to say and my immediate thought was i want them to feel like they can change the world Hmm. but a lot of them already feel like they can change the world a lot of them have spent their whole lives being told that they can change the world and some of them have spent their whole lives being told that they don't get to change the world. So my goal is to level that playing field a little.
0: Mm. Now, you didn't, uh, it, this is true, um, I see it was true, I'm reading this, didn't begin writing until a couple of years ago.
1: That's true. Yeah, I was in a, an office job. I was working hard and living my life. Um, and when I left that office job, because it was slowly crushing the soul right out of me, I found all this creativity in me and started writing and found the thing I'm supposed to do.
0: Hmm. I imagine that was scary.
1: It was did, did totally you... thrilling. Okay. All right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so soul crushing, but you knew you wanted more, but I guess had had an interest in writing and decided, well, I'm, I'm going to pursue this.
1: Yeah. Well, I had. I found myself with a story idea that just wouldn't go away, and I sat down and wrote it, and I thought to myself, no one will ever read this. I'm no writer. And things worked out a little different. (laughs)
0: What what was the first idea?
1: (laughs) The first idea was a a short horror story about an infant. And I won't go into detail on the horror story because it is a spooky, scary topic. I don't want to frighten your listeners this early in the morning. Um, I wrote it and sent it out to a literary magazine on an absolute whim. And lo and behold, they bought it. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. called Look. And if any of your listeners are interested in reading something... A little spooky. They can find it on the internet. Hmm.
0: So I want to talk about River of Teeth. This is uh, is getting getting a lot of buzz now. Uh, the, the the second part is is now out, right? Taste of Marrow. That's correct. Uh, so this is two couple of uh, novellas treating the the same story. Hippopotamus wranglers on yeah. the Mississippi <laughs> in an alternative uh, world in uh, alternative history for America, but it's based on a, on a kernel of of a real. A real story, right? It sure
1: is. Yeah, this thing almost happened. It is like my favorite part of having written these books is that I get to tell this story everywhere I go. This almost happened. uh, In 1910, the United States was facing a meat shortage. We had too many people and not enough animals to feed them. And we also were having an issue with invasive water hyacinth in the Mississippi waterways, which is causing trouble for all of the trade routes that we needed on the Mississippi waterways. A gentleman by the name of Robert Broussard came to the United States government and said, I have a solution. And his solution was to bring hippopotami into the country, raise them for meat. They would eat the water hyacinth. We would eat the hippos. Everybody would win. <laughs> uh, and it came within one Vote of passing.
0: Wow! Now you you could. Uh, by the way, the 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 hyacinth was brought in by Japanese visitors to the World's Fair. Right? That's right, it, as New a Orleans. gift.
1: Yeah, and it spread like kudzu.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so the unintended consequences, right? The beautiful flower, but it 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 it's, it's spread <laughs> and it was a, it was a horrible pest. And uh, I mean, this kernel but it, it has some logic to it, right? Uh, hippopotami are big.
1: Absolutely. There's a lot of meat on them. The only failure in the logic is that, you know, unlike cows, you can't tell a hippopotamus what to do. Yeah. Um, and I know some people who know cows, and they tell me it's hard to tell a cow what to do. Well, a hippopotamus weighs 3,000 pounds and has fangs, so add that to a cow, and <laughs> right. you're kind of out of luck.
0: Yeah. And I, I guess what the, what people weren't thinking is, and I think what uh, a lot of us know now, I, I didn't know this for a long time, but I learned it later, I guess uh, hippopotamus uh, is a mean animal. It's a dangerous animal.
1: Oh, absolutely. They are they're one of the most dangerous animals in the world. They kill hundreds of people every year. Um, they kill other animals for fun. They kill crocodiles for fun. A good friend of mine was recently in Africa, had the good fortune to go on a boat in the middle of a lake, and there are crocodiles on one side of the lake and hippos on the other. And their guide said, "If you fall out of the boat, swim toward the crocodiles."
0: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, so I guess this and this this plan would have uh, obviously, and as you imagine it, it, it's a disaster, right? Absolutely. Hippopotamus is an apex. Apex animal would have taken over the whole ecosystem.
1: Oh, absolutely. There is no animal out there who can successfully mess with a hippopotamus. Um, There are, you know, images of a hippo being attacked by like four lions and it just keeps walking. Mm. And human beings are no lions. Um, Hippos are invasive. They go where they want to go. I would invite any of you to try to tell a hippopotamus where it's allowed to go. And please put me in your will (laughs) 1st Um, In Central America, actually, there is a uh, species of hippopotamus that lives in the wild because Pablo Escobar brought them into his zoos and then they got out when the DEA busted up his his estates and now there's... A population of several dozen hippopotami that just live in Central America, mm. and they're making more hippos mm. that absolutely would have happened in the United States. So
0: this is happening in real life because mm-hmm. of Pablo Escobar, the, the the famous drug lord, right? Yep. Um, so as as so, you use this to now build an an alternative history of, of the United States. Uh, I sure Tell did. us a little bit more about how, where you went with this idea.
1: Yeah, so I bumped the whole notion back from 1910 to 1850 because I wanted to give this story some time to develop, um, and I wanted to set it in the 1890s so that I could write about cowboys. So River of Teeth is about cowboys and the hippos that love them and that don't love them so much, um, and the invasive feral hippos that have taken over the Mississippi River. And how those cowboys are contracted by the U.S. government to try to get the hippos out.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a revenge narrative here, right? There's there's hippo ranches, and wh- one fellow has had his ranch burned down and he's lost all his hippos but one, right? Which he and so in in your story there are hippos who are I guess domesticated and 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 the hippo wranglers ride them. Or...
1: Right. I mean, as as domesticated as a tiger, right? It's yeah. As domesticated as you hope it'll be. Um, but, yeah, this uh, Winslow tooth the kind of focal character of most of the book, uh, has had his hippo ranch burned down and now has got his one loyal hippo, Ruby, um, and is on the lookout to try and get back to the fellow who burned his ranch down.
0: Mm-hmm. Was, was this, I, I'm <laughs> I'm imagining this wasn't hard to sell. Maybe it was. <laughs> uh, if you give your elevator pitch on this, it's, it's about uh, hippo cowboys.
1: Yeah, well, you know, when I wrote it, I was just writing it to, kind of to see if I could. It was the biggest thing I'd ever done. And I figured no one's ever going to look at this. And then uh, right before I finished writing it, I got myself a literary agent, Dong Wan Song of Howard Morhaime, who I owe everything in my life too um, and I told him well you know I don't really have anything that you could sell I mean I'm writing this book about hippo cowboys but who wants that and he went everyone will <laughs> want that um, and he boy he sold it like just I mean I would say like a pro but he is a pro mm-hmm. uh, I i never figured that anybody would want to read it but yeah. all of a sudden they did
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about alternative history, speculative fiction. This is a real, you know, a, a thriving genre. Absolutely. Um, what was it like jumping into that genre? Had you read uh, pieces in in that genre before you did this work?
1: I had read a few, um, and I am a lover of history. I'm a great lover of the way that we tell stories about our history. And so when I was thinking about what I wanted to write with this this novella that I was going to take on, I realized that I could write about American history and historical narratives that we engage with. And I could add hippos to it, yeah. which would make it a little fun. Um, but as as a great lover of history, I have always uh, read historical stories. When I realized that you can change something small and explore the way that that changes the entire rest of the story throughout history, I was just in. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, uh, th- this is, and you wrote a, you wrote a separate piece uh, talking about this. I wonder if have you talked about this now, where you said that the story River of Teeth is, uh, one of the major themes is ecology.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the invasive species narrative, um, in River of Teeth, the invasive species are water hyacinth to begin with, which is something that is real that's in our real life in our real history something that accidentally got into the waterway and water hyacinth you cannot get rid of It uh, spreads under the water under the surface of the water it can grow up to a meter a day good luck getting rid of that stuff man um so that's one of the invasive species and then i wanted to discuss in the book the way that people try to solve nature We try to fix problems because we're very smart monkeys and we think that we can solve the things that we think nature is doing wrong by using more nature. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this uh, in Australia, right, rabbits and cane toads. We've seen it with beetles. We've seen it with snakes. We've seen it with horses. Um, And in River of Teeth, I thought, well, we were going to try and solve this problem by adding – more nature from a different place by bringing hippos in and saying, this will solve our problem. And I wanted to examine how our ecology would change. Uh, When you add a new species or when you take away an existing species, you change just everything about the entire ecosystem. And those changes can be farther reaching than we can even begin to understand
0: just chain upon chain right Re- chain reaction uh, in fact in the book you uh, what you imagine uh, the, the world you produce um to prevent the hippos from going further a dam is built on the mississippi this is one you know pretty big effect of, of now trying to fix a problem that we in this universe caused
1: yes and that's something that also has been discussed in the united states Uh, the atchafalaya river basin adjacent to the mississippi river has long been a subject of discussion about oh should we flood the atchafalaya river basin and how would we do it and should we bring in the army corps of engineers and should they do it this is something that you know we as people really like to do we like to change our environment to try and suit us better um and i really you know it's a thin layer of artifice on top of actual history and proposals that have been floating around the United States for a hundred years.
0: Um, and as you write in this essay, you, you know, talk about you talk about hubris, right? We, we're problem solvers; <laughs> we can yes. solve the problem. <laughs> but you know, this this plan, which which came within one vote of of being implemented. Um, I, I think we can all agree that, that your vision of what would have happened is probably pretty accurate. It would have been a disaster, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there we've seen in U.S. history, we've seen land grabs and gold rushes and settlement attempts. And when you say to people, uh, here's a new opportunity for you to get your hands on something, and all you have to do is participate in the way that we're going to change the landscape of our country – Boy, people will run at it, especially in a time when the big narrative is land ownership and owning your own business and being in charge of your own life, right? Self-actualization. If there was a hippopotamus industry that was going to boom in the U.S., people would run at it and they would not build good infrastructure around it. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, this is uh, must be great fun imagining this 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 universe as as well. Uh, So one before we take a break um, in this essay, you uh, made a parallel to fire and uh, how we have managed or mismanaged wildfire in in the West. And very timely is your your home state is burning up.
1: Very relevant to my current interests as a Californian.
0: Um, and, and so, uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how how, you know, to make that, that connection. We, uh, uh, again, trying to control nature, right. And then yeah. there are ramifications.
1: Well, I mean, I, with wildfires, we build our homes in areas that we think are pretty and we look at the pretty area and sometimes we don't take into account the reasons that the area is pretty, right. The areas that we like are beautiful because there's a lot of nature there and nature works in cycles, we try to manage wildfires and historically we have tried to manage wildfires by saying put the fire out it's going to destroy all the pretty nature oh no that tree will be all black and crumbly we ignore the fact that those wildfires happen naturally they you know whether humans are living there or not there's going to be fire The fire is going to burn away deadfall. It's going to participate in the nitrogen cycle. It's going to help certain conifers open their cones so that they can drop seeds. It's going to do all kinds of good and important things that in the long term are going to help that nature be pretty again. But we want it to be pretty now. So we say, put the fires out. Thank goodness we rescued nature from herself. Thank goodness we were here to intervene. But of course, as we're seeing more and more as a result of this, is that when the fire happens next time, it's bigger and it's hotter. And sometimes it gets too big and too hot and it does more damage than it's supposed to. And then very sadly, people get hurt, uh, pushed out of their homes. And of course, I don't have a solution for this now. Otherwise, I would be a fire marshal in charge of all kinds of big and important things. Um but I can say that if I could time travel back in time I would say hey guys maybe let the little fires happen so the big fires don't. Uh, and that's just another example of us trying to control our ecology to suit our pleasures.
0: Yeah. Well let's hope uh, we get the hand on those fires in California soon it's been it's just been horrible. Absolutely. Um let's take a break when we come back more with uh, Sarah Gailey. Uh, she's our guest she's uh, Author of uh, several works, just started writing a couple of years ago, and uh, she's already won some awards, a Hugo Award for a Critique and Celebration of the Women of Harry Potter. And uh, her River of Teeth novellas have uh, gotten a, a lot of uh, buzz. By the way, uh, Sarah Gilead, I don't know, this This seems cinematic to me. I don't know <laughs> if this will be optioned for a movie. I, I would watch that movie.
1: Um, here's hoping.
0: Yeah. Okay. So No, no bites yet, but... Uh, but, but possible, I guess.
1: We'll keep our fingers well, crossed. We'll
0: keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> Hollywood, if you're listening, um, um, you know, Cowboys on Hippos, it sounds like a good movie to me. Uh, so River of Teeth novellas, and the, the latest is uh, just out, and uh, that's called Taste of Marrow. Uh, Sarah Gailey is uh, in Logan right now, and she'll be in Salt Lake. She's in Utah for a series of events. There's a reading tonight at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, free and open to the public. You're invited to that. Then tomorrow afternoon at 1.30 p.m., she'll give a reading and answer questions about her work at the USU Library, Room 101. And uh, finally, on Friday, 11 a.m. on the USU campus, she's giving the Morris Media and Society Lecture on the topic Fear of the Female uh, Voice. Um, So the uh, website is uh, uh, com, right? And uh, Twitter is at Gailey Fry. That's right. Uh, A lot of interesting uh, stuff there. Uh, When we come back, I want to uh, talk about this very interesting, uh, provocative uh, essay at uh, Tor.com. Uh, the headline is, Facing Facts, American Identity is Based on Alternate History. The first line is, I have never read, nor will I ever write. an alternate history is creative and thoroughly wrought as the one I read in high school. We'll talk about that following
1: this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau presenting the Cache Valley Foodie Trek, access to the National Forest, and live theater opportunities. More information available online at explorelogan.com.
0: I'm Robin Young. joy! British author Cressida Cowell, best known for her How to Train Your Dragon
1: series, has a new adventure novel. Once there was magic. It was a long, long time ago. In a British Isle so old it did not know it was the British Isles yet. And the magic lived in the dark forests. Next time, Here and Now.
0: Join us for our two of Here and Now, today at noon, on Utah Public Radio.
1: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, showcasing outdoor access to the National Forest for hiking, fishing, and camping. Information on trails, campsites, and more is available online at (music) explorelogan.com.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, pleased to have speculative fiction author and social critic Sarah Gailey with me for the hour. Uh, she's giving a series of talks and readings in Utah in hopes of emboldening female writers and activists. And uh, here are those details. Uh, she'll give a reading tonight at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. That's uh, free and open to the public, 7 o'clock tonight. Then uh, tomorrow afternoon at 1.30 p.m., Thursday afternoon, 1.30 p.m., she'll give a reading, answer questions about her work at USU Library Room 101 on the USU campus. And uh, then Friday at 11 a.m., she's giving uh, the Morris Media and Society lecture on the topic of fear of the female voice. That, again, is Friday, 11 a.m., And uh, her visit is being jointly sponsored by the Utah State University's English and Journalism Departments with support from Deanne Morris, the benefactor of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series, which brings alternative and provocative speakers to Utah State. She writes at Tor.com, also BarnesandNoble.com and other places. Her website is SarahGailey.com and she tweets at Gailey Fry. Um, so maybe we could uh, start with, uh, this Morris, uh, media and society, l- lecture, Sergey Lee, the fear of the female voice. And so I, I took that when I read that as, uh, as kind of, um, metaphorical, right? Female <laughs> yeah. literary voice. Maybe you were telling me during the break, you're talking about the actual female voice on the radio.
1: Yes. Um, well, I'm talking about, uh, of female voices throughout history and historical and contemporary sociological contexts, uh, drawing a direct line between ancient siren myth and contemporary harassment of women in online and broadcasting spaces. Um, it, throughout history, female voices have been considered dangerous and so dangerous that they have been called by uh, various church organizations a mortal threat. Um, And this carries directly through to, you know, in broadcasting and in online spaces and in literature, uh, female voices are responded to the same way that people will respond to threats, Um, get rid of it, shut it down. My voice right now is, you know, I have a high pitched voice, I pitch it a little low when I'm trying to broadcast. And so sometimes I go into something called glottal fry, also called Vocal fry—that kind of gravelly thing that a lot of female broadcast journalists do, because we're trying to speak in a low-pitched voice—and you'll probably get some complaints about the quality of my voice and how it's annoying. Mm. And that's something that every woman who speaks into a microphone gets feedback on. Mm. Um, and that's uh, that's the literal voice, and that goes right on back to the idea that women could sing a song that would lure sailors to their deaths.
0: Mm. So danger, danger there, right? Exactly. Yeah. Danger of females were uh, expressing themselves in a certain way.
1: I guess. Right, or at all. Or, or um, at all, okay. Uh, my least favorite historic rhetoricist, uh, whose name is suddenly escaping me because I'm trying to remember it, <laughs> um, wrote in his uh, his treatise on rhetoric in the 1500s, uh, that what best becometh a woman is is silence without which no woman has any good gift speaking at all is a dangerous thing
0: hmm. by the way parenthetically and I want to explore this uh, uh, more in depth um, I I kind of I kind of like vocal fry. I don't know. I I, I, I uh, <laughs> some cases even find it sexy. Uh, but uh, I guess there's a whole other topic, right? Yeah, sure. Um, but um, and this American Life, by the way, did a whole episode on vocal fry. Beca- I because loved it, that you know, episode because it is a thing, right? A- and it's controversial, and and there's a lot of people who don't like it, and and mm-hmm. that's directed a lot at women.
1: Absolutely. Um, I've I've studied vocal production and. And, you know, voice and speech for theater purposes. And in that context, we're taught that glottal fry is something that happens when you're trying to pitch your voice low without proper breath support from your diaphragm, right? So if you don't know how to use your diaphragm well, which a lot of people don't, because why would you? And you're trying to pitch your voice low in order to sound more authoritative, you end up getting a little bit gravelly like this. And I think that there is a, an often unconscious response to women attempting to sound authoritative, and that response is often not positive. So when people say, oh, women who speak with glottal or vocal fry are just the worst, I think what they're often unconsciously saying is women who try to sound authoritative need to cut that right out.
0: Mm. Um, Margaret Thatcher famously lowered her voice because of these these issues
1: yes yeah and she if you listen to recordings of her she gets lower and lower and lower and lower and lower, much lower than I can go
0: yeah <laughs> because she felt like she wouldn't be taken seriously mm-hmm. as she a was, political leader she yeah. was
1: operating very much in a man's world and the voices you know the way that we speak communicates so much about us to the world that we live in and she needed to sound like she had the authority that she actually factually had
0: yeah well, taking this I guess you you will be treating the the physical voice and also kind of sort of the metaphorical voice um, so talking about the the latter uh, and you mentioned um it, it's it's been uh, it's been a thing's been controversial but women in certain areas who try to assert themselves are getting uh just ugly pushback
1: oh absolutely um I will say that every woman who I've ever spoken to who exists on the internet has at some point been told to shut up and go away. Um, I, as a mouthy broad on the internet who expresses an awful lot of opinions, I get told to go away in some truly horrifying ways that are not appropriate for public radio for me to describe. It's it's common and it's ugly, and it's a result of that fear that if women speak, we'll say things that might just change the world. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, where do you think this is coming from? Uh, the, I guess permission on the Internet that uh, you can be anonymous and say these things. I guess mm-hmm. that's one element, right? Mm-hmm. You can say very ugly things and it's not attached to your reputation, I suppose.
1: Yeah. Um, the, anon- the anonymity is huge. Um, it It's happened a few times where someone will be harassing women online and the women will say, hey, buddy, we know who you actually are. And then all of a sudden the harassment stops and there are apologies forthcoming. I think that there's also um, – you know, in our in our culture at large, men are often told by their teachers growing up, by their parents, by things that they see on television, that they intrinsically know what's right. And women are often told, and men are told us about women, that women need more guidance, um, that we don't automatically know what's right, right? If a girl is smart at something that you comment on. And so when a woman is trying to be authoritative on an issue or even just expressing an opinion on an issue or even just saying anything at all, there's a large culture of men out there who feel that she is in need of their guidance and correction and that if she doesn't think she's in need of their guidance and correction, then they ought to tell her where she can go.
0: Where where have you gotten the biggest blowback? I, I know that, you know, we've heard of um, pushback, say, in the gaming world or… Uh, you, you know that uh, there is a particular s- set of or culture of a uh, subculture of men who really are uh, <laughs> pushing back in very ugly ways. <laughs> I don't know where you've gotten the pushback.
1: Yeah, so I my primary social media platform is Twitter, and then I am a columnist for a few different websites, and I get pushback from two primary directions. Um, whenever I speak about politics, of course, you know I I get all the ugliest side of. Far ends of the political spectrum come after me. Um, but also when I do literary analysis of science fiction and fantasy media, hmm. this is a genre that historically has not been kind to women, that it contemporarily is often unkind to women. And that has been difficult for women to break into, right? So there are a lot of men who have been interested in science fiction and fantasy for a long time and are used to it being a place where their ideas are the only ideas that are discussed. And then I barge in and I start saying, hey, now, wait a minute. I recently published a commentary on the original Blade Runner film uh, discussing the ways in which the movie is about state-sanctioned police violence. And boy, the pushback that I got was bananas. I also got, you know, of course, a lot of people saying, oh, gosh, this is so nice. But you often hear a lot more of the negative than the positive. And most of that pushback that I saw was from men who were saying, who do you think you are? This doesn't belong to you. Mm-hmm. This is our world. You get out of it.
0: Yeah. I guess that's a, that's a key, isn't it? That the, 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 Many of those men feel like this is our world.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. W- women
0: don't belong. You don't belong.
1: Yes, and that's something that, you know, I can understand when you when you have a space that has prioritized you for a long time. It doesn't feel great to suddenly have that space prioritizing other people as well. The unfortunate thing is when people don't recognize that it really is just other people being prioritized as well. Nothing is being stolen away from you when equality becomes a factor.
0: Um, I was reading. Um, uh, 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 an article that you uh, wrote in the Boston Globe, uh, which I, I think somewhat relates here. Disso- dissociation is scary. Mm-hmm. Dissociation is safety. That's the headline. Mm-hmm. And you talk about your experiences with dissociation. Uh, what, based on from trauma?
1: Yeah, yeah. I have a severe post-traumatic stress disorder.
0: Um, and you in in that article you you quote some things that you've some some things on the internet that. I assume men have have said to you.
1: Yes. Um,
0: which which are which are just you know, ugly and oh, hor- absolutely. horrible. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Threats of uh, physical and sexual violence are extremely common in these situations. Um, I cannot possibly begin to count the number of times that I've gotten a message from some anonymous guy who doesn't like what I'm talking about, and what he says is, "I'm going to come to your house and do these terrible things to you." And when you're someone who has a history of violent trauma and who has mental illness as a result of that violent trauma, reading those threats can cause serious mental impact.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, it's, uh, it's just very ugly. Um, tell me a little bit about this uh, dissociation. Uh, you know, for people who have not experienced it, it does sound uh, scary. You, you start out the article talking about exercises your therapist is having having you do um, focusing on objects? I guess trying not to dissociate your your mind from your body, right?
1: Right. So dissociation is, um, and this, you know, I'm not a a mental health professional, so I'm. This is just my understanding of it based on my experience. Uh, dissociation is something that your psyche does to protect you. So um, when a traumatic incident happens, right? Let's say that uh, you know. Aliens land in your living room and they start shooting ray guns at you. You have to be able to shut off the part of your brain that is going, ah, oh my gosh, aliens. And run away and maybe grab the dog before you leave the house and make sure that you're wearing shoes. And so your brain helps you do all those things by shutting off that emotional response and making sure that you can do the things you need to do. The problem is is that you've got to have that emotional response sometimes, which is where post-traumatic issues can crop up, right? Dissociation, when there's not a traumatic event happening, occurs when your brain thinks that there's a traumatic event happening. So someone says to you a year later, hey, I'm going to come into your living room like an alien and shoot you with a ray gun. And your brain goes, oh boy, this is happening again. I'd better make sure that we can do what we need to do and puts you into that fight or flight response. The dissociation part is the result of the you that you are, right, you, Tom, being distant from what's happening around you. And this is your brain's attempt to protect you so that you can function and do what you need to do, but unfortunately it's not always helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, My particular article uh, takes place in the middle of a work day when I was sitting at my desk And got a little buzz on my phone and looked down at my phone and had like four or five messages anonymously from someone who was saying that they were going to come and find me and do horrible things to me. And my brain went, someone's going to come find you, do horrible things to you. You better run away. But of course, I've got to stay at work. And so dissociation comes into play where you've got two different things at war with each other and your psyche is trying to accommodate both.
0: Hmm. I want to just read a, a part of a paragraph uh, here from this article. My therapist, this is Sarah Gilly. My therapist says I'm doing better. She says that because I haven't had a full-blown dissociative episode in months, an episode where instead of being wrapped in cotton, I'm trapped in memories and can't tell who my friends are and who is hurting me, I'm succeeding. She says that soon I won't have to name things anymore. This is the exercise where you name objects to try to right. you know, keep from going to dissociative episodes. So. Uh, trapped in memories and can't tell who my friends are and who's hurting me. That, that does sound very scary.
1: Yes, it's a, it's very – well, in the moment it's not frightening at all, right, because you're not there. This is the thing that we classically think of when we think of post-traumatic stress disorder. A lot of media portrayals insist that this is what it's like, right? You picture a soldier who's walking through the grocery store and a car backfires and all of a sudden the soldier thinks that they are back in the jungle, right? Um, and this is what we – what we discuss when we talk about a, when I say full-blown dissociative episode, which is probably not the clinical term, um, is, you know, I'm walking down the street and I trip and fall and my friend grabs me in a certain way to try and catch me. And all of a sudden, my brain says, someone's grabbing you, you are going to have to fight them off and run away. Um, Fortunately, due to the extensive help of my wonderful therapist, a trauma therapist, I've gotten to a point where I'm able to manage that response. Mm -hmm. But not everyone has access to those resources. And so we end up with people who don't know where they are and don't know who's hurting them and have unfortunate responses to that input.
0: Yeah. And uh, all the way from that to uh, what you might call mundane things that you might not think about. Um, For example, you write in the article that your now husband, um, when you were dating said, your hands are cold all the time. Mm-hmm. This is a physical response, right? The, the the body wants to suck all the blood back and protect the organs if it thinks it's in danger.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Your, your, your brain's priority is keeping your brain running and it knows that it needs the organs to run, but it doesn't need your fingers to run. And so when you've got that fight or flight response going at a low level at all times, which is the nature of my severe post-traumatic stress disorder or was, thankfully I've got blood in my fingertips now, um, you wind up with cold hands and cold feet hmm. because your brain is going, you don't need blood there. If someone's going to chop off your fingers, you're not going to hemorrhage.
0: Yeah. Is it, um, I, I guess, was was it hard for you to, to do that article to, to talk talk about these things or is it... Or is it is it healing? I guess the, the one a good aspect of this would be people are tuning in and hearing about your experience. Maybe they can have some hope.
1: Yeah. Um, in the moment, it wasn't hard at all because I wrote it actually during a dissociative episode that I was working through. Um, after I wrote it, I showed it to a friend of mine who uh, works at the Boston Globe and said, can you help me figure out where I might try and send this to get it published because I'm trying to get things published now, and what the heck, I wrote it. Um, And fortunately, that friend said, this would be perfect for the Boston Globe. Actually, I'm going to send it over and see if we want it. Um, The hardest part of that article was after it got published, again, the amount of pushback. There is a lot of – a lot of people have a lot of opinions about women speaking about mental illness, especially as the result of trauma. And a lot of people have a voyeuristic impulse when women speak about trauma, right? Again, our media has portrayed female trauma often as something that is exciting um, and that feeds the story, right? Think of like Game of Thrones, think of uh, True Detective. Female trauma drives a narrative and is an interesting part of the story. And so I got a lot of people contacting me angry that I didn't talk about what happened to cause the trauma, which, of course... Uh discussing explicit trauma is something that is triggering and re-traumatizing for people who have post-traumatic stress disorder. So that was definitely the hardest part. But I am very glad that I published it because I've also heard from people who have said, holy cow, I have this going on too. Should I see a therapist for help? Should I go and seek trauma counseling? And I had the opportunity to say, oh, my goodness, yes.
0: Hmm. Excellent. Um, we're going to take another break soon, and then uh, I promised in this segment we would talk about alternative history <laughs> And here's school. I, we will certainly do that in the next segment. I want to get this in. We have an email. And by the way, uh, neglected to give out the, the email. If you'd like to respond to the program, we hope that you will. Uh, here's how. Um, 800-826-1495 is the way you call. 800-826-1495 to talk with uh, Sarah Gailey. And you could email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, Upraccess at gmail.com. We've got uh, Sergey with us for another about 15 minutes. This is Steve. He's uh, emailed in. Uh, he says, I'm just tuning in, and maybe you've already discussed this. By happenstance, I learned last night that cowboys on camels was a real thing in the Old West. <laughs> True story. According to the source I stumbled on, before the Civil War, U.S. government procured a large number of camels from Cairo, hoping that they would be better suited than horses as pack animals and riding animals in the dry conditions of the Southwest. During the war, many of the camels escaped and lived as feral animals until the early 1940s. The cowboys did indeed avail themselves of camels for both riding and carrying heavy loads. That's uh, Steve.
1: Thank you, Steve. Um, yeah, the, this is a, another classic example of if you talk to anyone who has experience with the animal, you will learn about the challenges of the animal, and. Boy, are camels stubborn.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I guess you wouldn't have maybe had the same problems that uh, camels are not necessarily an apex predator. um, But uh, still, you know, camels feral out there, I guess. I've not heard of any more camels, so they died out apparently or something happened. I
1: haven't heard either, but boy, if I ever encounter one, Steve, I'll let you know.
0: Yeah, and maybe that could be the next uh, novel, (laughs) (laughs) Cowboys Hunt Camels. Um, Sarah Gailey, uh, before we go to break, is uh, giving a reading tonight at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, 7 o'clock, free and open to the public. That's uh, King's English in Salt Lake City. Uh, Tomorrow afternoon, Thursday afternoon at 1.30 p.m., she'll give a reading and answer questions about her work at uh, the USU Library Room 101 on the USU campus. That event is free and open to the public. Then on Friday at 11 a.m., she's giving the Morris Media and Society Lecture on the topic, Fear of the Female Voice. That is Friday, 11 a.m. on the USU campus. More following this break.
1: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Four Paws Animal Rescue presenting the 17th annual Moondog Ball. Saturday, October 21st at the Logan Country Club with live music by Atlas Grove and Reckless Uprising. Information at moondog.eventbrite.com. Tristan Harris once had a successful career in Silicon Valley trying to manipulate your attention. And then he became disenchanted. And so you started to see technology not as a vehicle for improving people's lives, but really as a means to persuade people to do things. I'm Guy Raz. Ideas about manipulation? That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement. Online at utahhumanities.org.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached the last uh, segment uh, today with Sarah Gailey, uh, who is an author and uh Uh, She's uh, also a uh, speculative fiction author and a social critic. She's giving a series of talks and readings in Utah over the next of these few days and um, in hopes of emboldening female writers and activists. And uh, here are those events. Tonight at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, 7 p.m., she'll be giving a reading. That's free and open to the public. On Thursday afternoon on the USU campus, uh, 1.30 p.m., she'll give a reading and answer questions about her work. That's at USU Library Room 101. Then on Friday, 11 a.m., she's giving the Morris Media and Society Lecture on the topic Fear of the Female Voice. That's free and open to the public as well, uh, Friday at uh, 11 uh, a.m., and uh, that's, I believe, also at the library. And uh, the Surrogatele's appearance uh, uh, in Utah is being jointly sponsored by Utah State University's English and Journalism departments with support from Deanne Morris, benefactor of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series, which brings alternative and provocative speakers to uh, Utah State. Uh, So I promised for the last segment, uh, and so we'll get it in here since we didn't get to it last segment, um, here is the first sentence of a recent uh, provocative essay in at Tor.com by Sarah Galey. She says, I've never read nor will I ever write an alternate, alternate history as creative and thoroughly wrought as the one I read in high school. So what are you talking about here?
1: So in this essay I'm discussing uh, the ways in which our American historical identity is based on an elaborate fiction. Um, The elaborate fiction is that everything is and has always been just fine for everyone. And this is something that was pervasive in my American history education and in the American history education of many of your listeners, I'm sure. Things like um, many slaves were treated well. And so really, it's sensationalist to say that slavery was a horror in our history. Things like uh, No one was living here when it was, when America was discovered in 1492. And if anyone was living here, they were very pleased to help us out. And we were pleased to receive their help. And everyone was friends. Uh, Things like racism was solved back in the 60s. And we don't need to worry about it anymore. These are the stories that we tell with our history education oftentimes. And I think it leads to some contemporary uh, friction. To say the least.
0: And it's, as you say in the piece, it's tied up in our identity, the way we view ourselves.
1: Yes. um, We see ourselves as exceptional. We see the American way as the right way. Um, And we see ourselves as fundamentally mostly okay with maybe a few hiccups here and there. And our history, as we all know, is something that informs our identity, right? What we've done and who we've been helps to create who we are. We, I think, see this more clearly when we look at other countries, when we look at the way that uh, countries who we disagree with rewrite their history and teach their children, hey, this person who's in power has always been in power, and that's great, and they are the greatest, and we shouldn't ask questions about that. And when we see other countries say this particular revolution was actually not violent, and nobody died, and everyone was happy, and everybody is friends, and we shouldn't ask questions about that. But I think we have a hard time seeing it when we look at our own history. Hmm.
0: I uh, uh, like to – there was a comment there, – there's several comments to this story on tour.com. One of them, uh, the, the person said they grew up in Oklahoma, and uh, every year there was a celebration in class of the Oklahoma land rush, and they, they reenacted it, I guess. And, uh, and, and kind of this view of that particular history is everything was fine, right? But then uh, this person says they got older and learned the history and that, that the Native peoples in Oklahoma were already had experienced the Trail of Tears. And uh, th- then, you know, the land that they thought was going to be theirs was given away, that the reenactment should have been this person being progressively pushed more into a corner of the classroom. And, <laughs> you know, um, uh, so it's, it's very interesting. Um, this this dynamic is is playing out right now. Right. Um, There's the argument over the Confederate monuments and and memorials.
1: Absolutely. And it
0: goes to the way we see ourselves, the way we want to see ourselves.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. We use monuments and memorials to back up the stories that we've told. Right. We we build a statue to the hero of the story. Um, When we look at the way that, again, other countries have changed because it can be easier to look at others than to look at ourselves. We see them tear down statues that represent the fact that someone who has been saying they're the hero of the story is actually the villain of the story. Those people don't forget their history when they tear down the statue of the person who was actually the villain. But they, in tearing down the statue, are acknowledging that that person is not the hero and should not be celebrated. You know, that's the whole purpose of statues. We don't build statues to villains in Germany, there are not statues of Hitler around to memorialize that history because the people remember their history and don't particularly want to celebrate a villain. I think that the argument about these Confederate monuments is really an argument about the story we tell ourselves about our history. The story that a lot of people tell themselves about Confederate history is that it had nothing to do with slavery. It had nothing to do with uh, maintaining that institution and the people who were fighting on the side of the Confederacy, who now have statues, were really just interested in politics and state rights. Of course, there there's a fallacy there of separating politics from slavery because our economy and our politics are intrinsically connected. Um, but when people talk about tearing down those statues, what they're really talking about is tearing apart that story and acknowledging the factual history, which you can see in source documents that the Confederacy was interested and invested and invested in money and in blood in maintaining the institution of slavery.
0: Yeah, I would just have a couple minutes left. Uh, I want to, maybe you could give the, uh, the the short version of of this. Uh, you, you wrote an interesting piece recently, "Harry Potter: A Beginner's Guide to Evaluating Authority." <laughs> yes. uh, you've you've done a lot of work on Harry Potter. I have And won some awards for it. Um, wh- what are you talking about here?
1: Uh, In this piece, which is uh, published on brandsandnoble.com, I believe, I'm discussing the ways in which parents and really anyone can use the Harry Potter books as a guide for learning how to evaluate the legitimacy of authority, right? So something that we learn when we are adults that we often don't learn when we're children is that not everyone who is in power is to be trusted. Uh, We often teach our children, if someone's in power, you should listen to them. Because what that really means is I'm in power, you should listen to me so that I can tell you how to actually live through childhood and grow up to be an adult. In this essay, I talk about the importance of teaching children from an early age how to evaluate the legitimacy of authority, how to say, this person does not have my best interests at heart, right? This this uh, person who is a grown up, but who is telling me to get into this van and I don't know them. We try to teach our children, don't listen to the authority of that person telling you to get into the van. But also on a larger scale, teaching children how to say this person who is in charge of a city or a state or a country does not have the best interests of the people at heart or of a certain demographic of people at heart or that person is too cowardly to fulfill the promises that they made. And so we need to teach children and also some of our fellow adults how to evaluate that well. This essay is about how to use the authority figures in Harry Potter as kind of a guidebook. Because J.K. Rowling does a great job in those books of presenting us with authority figures who are legitimate, authority figures who are illegitimate, and authority figures who are questionable and who we should continue trying to evaluate constantly.
0: We will uh, leave it there. Much more to talk about. Uh, By the way, the Twitter feed is very interesting. Uh, You're a a good tweeter, I guess. (laughs) I don't know how you phrase it. uh, At Gailey Fry. That's right. Um, The website is uh, sarahgayley.com. And uh, you can check out her work, including uh, River of Teeth, The uh, Cowboys on... Hippopotami. Um, And uh, Sarah Gailey will be uh, doing a reading this evening at 7 p.m. at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. That's free and open to the public. Then tomorrow, Thursday at 1.30 p.m., she's giving a reading and answering questions about her work at the USU Library Room 101. And then on Friday, 11 a.m., she's giving the Morris Media and Society Lecture on the topic Fear of the Female Voice on the uh, USU campus. That's Friday, 11 a.m. Her visit is being jointly sponsored by Utah State University's English and Journalism Departments with support from Deanne Morris, the benefactor of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series, which brings alternate, uh, alternative and provocative speakers to Utah State. Sarah Gailey, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Tom.
0: And thanks for listening to Access Utah. There are 14,932 ways to fall on the radio. In this next hour of Radio Lab, we will bring you eight. Falling!
1: That's the next Radio Lab.
0: Join us this Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Hey, this is Chris from Knoxville. Um, just wanted to call, leave a voicemail, and uh, let you know how much I appreciate Bullseye. It's a show that really gets to the heart of things quickly.
1: I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, I'm talking with actress Amy Ryan and writer Shay Serrano. On the next Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Join us Saturday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio.
0: On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll dance the tango in its many forms, from the traditional bandoneon of Argentina to the pulsing electronica of the new tango of Finland and Norway. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join me for Tango Around the World, the next Putumayo
1: World Music Hour.
0: Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.